Father, we trust you. Uh, we have to. We'd be foolish not to. And your word tells us that uh, in trusting you, there is incredible joy. In trusting you, there is assurance and confidence that even if things don't go the way we expect or even the way we want, we can be assured that it is your sovereign will and that you are working always on our sanctification, that you are constantly shaping us into the image of Christ. You are steadily and pursuantly going after our hearts and our minds, chasing us as we run from you, embracing us when you cause us to turn to you, and then giving us your love, which fills our heart, and we respond by loving you. So we thank you for your love, we thank you for your word, and you love us through your word. So love your people this morning through a difficult text that could easily be misconstrued as not love and help us to see and understand that this is the best way to love those who refuse to obey. So Lord, we ask for your grace, we ask for humility, and we trust that your word will do its work. It will not return void. It will accomplish all that you send it out to accomplish. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so, today's issue in the text is church discipline. But the core of this text is not about church discipline. Rather, it is about the purity of the gospel in sound doctrine. That's the goal. That has been the theme all throughout this book so far, all throughout this letter, that Paul is encouraging Timothy to deal with false teachers and deal with heresy in the church, which we know they do because 30 years later, Jesus speaks to John and he writes Revelation 2 and, John, and Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, you hate liars and false teachers and those who oppose the gospel and you've dealt with them. So 30 years later, they did the job. What we learned last week is in the process of sticking to sound doctrine, they lost their first love for Christ. So we talked about the importance of as we pursue sound doctrine, that the information our brains receive about the truth of God's word as our theology grows and our doctrine becomes more sufficient that we don't lose in our heart our love for Christ, that the information that goes into our mind does translate into transformation in our lives. If it doesn't, then it's not sound doctrine. So that's what, we, it's what we've covered so far. Now, as we get to the end of the first chapter, Paul kind of summarizes, sort of, and reiterates to Timothy what is important, this charge. The purity of the gospel and sound doctrine is the aim. <clears throat> but what we find here and what this text reveals is that sometimes the only way to ensure sound doctrine and to preserve the purity of the gospel is to enact severe, and I mean severe, discipline on those who either teach a false gospel or those who refuse to repent of their sin and in their 
unrepentance, they also putrefy the lovely aroma of the gospel. And thus, they ruin the image of God in the church, and a ruined image of God in the church is a ruined image of God to the world. Therefore, the discipline that is involved in today's text is not primarily about discipline. Paul is not saying, hey, let's stop talking about doctrine. Let's just talk about church discipline for a minute. He's not doing that. He's reiterating through discipline how important sound doctrine is. It is about doing whatever it takes to preserve the purity of the gospel and to ensure that the church stands firm on sound doctrine. And we'll talk about, we'll kind of address what that means later uh, because I think the church, I say the church, I mean like, you know, I don't know, the American church maybe, kind of in general, maybe uh, a more succinct way of saying it would be like the evangelical church in America kind of has this bent toward love, which, great, because it's supposed to be one of the most obvious markers of a follower of Christ is love. Right, But sometimes we misunderstand love. Sometimes we misapply love. Sometimes we do things that we're not supposed to do motivated by genuine love for God and his word. The problem is, and this is where sound doctrine comes in, is we have to apply our love from sound doctrine. The word of God directs us how to use love in various situations. Okay, so if you've got a brother in Christ who's like, man, I am having a hard time, I am burdened, I am struggling, I, I just, I need help, I need prayer, I've got cinema, you know, and, and they come to you, you don't go to them, well, I'm going to tell the pastor and they're going to kick you out of church because you're sinning. That's not love, okay? Love in that case is Galatians 6, which says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which... The word also tells us the law of Christ is the law of love. So in a case like that, love is reach out, hold, support, encourage, embrace, communicate, associate, uh, take their burden upon yourself, pray with them and for them, have them over for dinner, spend time with them, disciple them. That's love in that scenario. But then there's another kind of love that looks very different. When a believer is sinning, and it can be any sin. This is not just the big ones, right? It's not just adultery. Oh, that's the one we kick people out of church for. And we have evidence of that in 1 Corinthians 5. But it's any sin that when a believer is committing sin, and another believer confronts that believer with their sin, and calls them to repentance. Now, I understand that there are a variety of ways in which that conversation can go, and I cannot <laughs> cover every possible scenario because you could sit here and go, well, yeah, but what if, like I learned that in, as a youth pastor, and, and Drew knows this because he deals with, he, he leads the youth. You bring up a scenario, and you'll have 15 junior hires go, what if, <laughs> what if this happens? What if that happens? And then they start coming up with just the craziest out of this world, kind of like hypothetical situations. And, and as a youth pastor, I finally learned one day, I was like, no hypothetical situations. I'm going to keep going. Okay, so you could, you know, 
conceivably just think of a scenario where this maybe doesn't apply, okay? So, but I'm being general and I'm trying to help you understand the ethos or the kind of the, the atmosphere of this text, all right? And so there's another kind of love that we have to enact when there's, there's a person sinning, your brother or sister in Christ is sinning and you see that sin and because you love them, and you want them to love Christ and follow Christ and be faithful, you confront them on their sin. And this is done in a gentle, compassionate, loving, understanding way. Okay? This is not bashing another Christian. This is confronting their sin. And you call them to change. You call them to repentance. You identify that says, hey man, I've seen this in your life and you know, how are you doing? What's going on? I, I see you doing this thing. You know, kind of verify. And they refuse to repent. Now the Bible gives us some prescription for how to, what to do in that scenario. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But if this person continues to refuse to repent of their sin after being confronted by one and then confronted by two or three and then confronted by the church... And they still are like, no. Either they don't think they're sinning, or they just don't want to change, or they're just ignorant, whatever the reason. Love takes a different shape in that scenario. And love becomes church discipline. That is love. And I'll explain to you why it's love as we go through this text. So that's, that's the atmosphere Paul's dealing with is that there's a particular way to love Christians when they're unrepentant, and it's severe. So, we get to verse 18. <clears throat> and again, let me just clarify before we jump into the text. All of that is meant to clarify a larger issue, which is God will not sacrifice his gospel. God will not sacrifice the purity of the gospel. God will not sacrifice sound doctrine for your feelings. That sounds harsh, but it's love. And I'll explain that too. So verse 18, Paul writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among who are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. <clears throat> so what's the charge that Paul entrusted to Timothy? Because he says, I charge, uh, this charge I entrusted to you. And the charge, we're told back in verse 3, is this. Paul says to Timothy, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. I'll give you a really good... Uh, watch the news. Okay, as far as like endless myths, uh, myths and endless genealogies, it is so easy to get lost in the... kind of get wrapped up in the world's news. There's just always something, and it's... There's just always something trying to distract you from what you should be focusing on, which is the gospel, which is Christ, which is the word, which is the church, which is... Your loved ones, which is the gospel, which is spreading the gospel, which is your mission. So all of these things we should be focused on. I mean, why do you go to work every day? 
to make money so you can afford your house and car and provide for your family? Is that your priority? No, it shouldn't be. Is that a priority? Yes. Your priority for going to work every day is because that's the mission field God puts you in. Your objective at work is to be the light of Christ to the people you work with. That doesn't mean you go to work tomorrow and you kick in everyone's door and you go, you need Jesus! Like, there's a finesse to it, right? There's a, an appropriate way to shed the light of Christ for other people. You're in a long-term relationship with your coworkers, So, you know, take it slow, take it easy. <laughs> Do it in a loving, compassionate, understanding way. Always speaking truth. Always being righteous. And then when you're not righteous, being humble and confessing and admitting, oh man, I screwed up, I made a mistake, that's on me. You know, like just that, that's the opportunity, that's the place you have to, to kind of exalt Christ and that's the way in which we keep ourselves focused on doctrine. And that's like your objective, that's why you do the things you do, is, is everything you do, whether it's work or play or entertainment, whatever, whether it's going to church, everything is, is surrounded by this idea that our objective in life is to exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ some way, shape, or form. And we can get distracted by that when we watch like maybe the news sometimes, right now, it's really like... The government is literally like our government, our like senators and Congress people are like meeting and talking about uh, what are we going to do with all these UFOs? Are there aliens? And while that's happening, there's other things going on under our nose that we don't even know are going on. And all of America's like, ooh, UFOs, aliens, I'm so excited. And it's just a distraction. It's just Satan. It's just Satan. And it's a distraction. Christians, stay focused. Do not devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogies that are going to throw you off track from the gospel. And that's, that is Timothy's responsibility. That's his charge that he's been entrusted with to convey that to the church in Ephesus. To not teach any different doctrine nor to get lost or wrapped up in, a different, in anything that confuses you from the gospel. That is the charge that Paul has given Timothy, and it is a charge that here in verse 18 is specifically for Timothy, which we know because he goes on to say that this charge is, in verse 18, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, Timothy, that by them, by the prophecies about Timothy, you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So the good warfare that Timothy is to engage in is the war against false teaching, which is always going to include uh, a war against false teachers. So there's people involved. There's people that Timothy has to deal with. It's very easy to stand up here in front of a group of people and say, this is true, this is not. This is what we believe, this is what we don't believe. This is how you should behave, this is how you shouldn't behave. It's a very different thing to sit down with an individual and go, Here's what you need to hear. That's different. Or, or to sit down with a heretic, a false teacher, and go, you need to stop. You're preaching a false gospel. That's very different. And so that's a difficult thing, and that's the war that Timothy's going to have to engage in. Now, the prophecies made about Timothy's future role in the church, they're finally coming true. Timothy was prophesied over uh, before, probably when he was in Lystra, or, or yeah, in Lystra where he met Paul. And then <clears throat> this prophecy about Timothy is like the foundation. This is kind of how Paul's laying it out in this text. This 
prophecy about you, Timothy, is the foundation upon which you're going to wage your war against heresy. Like, you have this prophecy as your assurance that this is your call to deal with this because the gospel is that important. So Paul uses, like, military language here, waging the good warfare. And he uses military language to emphasize the valor that is needed to battle these heretics. And upon the foundation of the prophecies made about Timothy's call to ministry, Timothy can wage the good warfare, hold the faith, and have a good conscience. Now, the good warfare that Timothy is to wage will require that he hold faith. Meaning that he continue to believe the truths of the real gospel as the footing that keeps him planted in the truth. And it's a much needed footing that will ensure that he does not waver from his mission as prophesied. So that holding the faith is like a, it's kind of like Ephesians chapter 6, putting on for your shoes the gospel of peace. And the shoes as the war, as the uh, warfare equipment against the enemy have spikes in them. And what the spikes do is they provide solid footing upon which you stand so that the enemy cannot move you. And I, let me tell you, if Timothy's going to go after heretics, the enemy's going to be battling him. And he's saying, and Paul's telling him, to wage this good warfare, you're going to have to have faith. And that faith is going to be a strong footing planted firmly on the gospel. You cannot waver on the truth that you know. And holding faith will also ensure that Timothy has a good conscience. Now, our conscience is a gift from God. And everyone has a conscience. Some people's consciences are warped. Some are not. But everyone has one. It's a God-given gift, and it's triggered by evil and sin and wrongdoing and injustices in the world. And what happens is when we see those things, we are warned by our conscience, and that when we veer into those wicked things, we start, our conscience starts producing some things. It starts producing fear and shame and guilt and doubt. That triggered warning of our conscience is meant to kind of lead us back to moral goodness. But as believers, we know that moral goodness is not the aim, right? For us in the faith, that conscience is operated by the Holy Spirit. Who overcomes that fear and overcomes that shame and overcomes that guilt and overcomes that doubt to produce something more beneficial that we call conviction. Which is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, Timothy cannot have a guilty conscience when addressing heresy, or, his, it would, or he would expose himself as having shaky fear, and, and, and it would disqualify him from this role. So Timothy's war against heresy requires his faith and a good conscience to be tethered to the confidence of Christ that comes only in knowing sound doctrine, which means the one who's going to deal with false doctrine needs to have sound doctrine. And that's why Paul trusts Timothy, because Timothy walked with Paul for a long time. Timothy knows all of Paul's teachings. And he's got this letter to clarify, among the other letters that Paul's written that are circulating through the churches. So, this is Timothy's charge. A charge to charge. His charge is to charge heretics to stop preaching heresy and to repent. What if they don't? 
What if they don't repent? What if they don't stop? What if they refuse to listen to their elder? What if they refuse to listen to their pastor? What if they defy their church leaders? What if they don't stop? What if they don't repent? Paul says that some have already done this in verse 19. He says, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So I've talked about these two before, so we got kind of a footing or a groundwork for them. <clears throat> so there are, are two ways to answer this question of, what if they don't stop? One way to answer it is, those who don't stop have already made a shipwreck of their faith. There are consequences for those who refuse to stop deceiving the church, and that consequence, namely, is eternal hell. But the other way to answer this question of what if they don't stop is to save these heretics from hell so that they may be saved in the day of Christ. Now what I'm not going to address today is this delineation between a heretic who's saved and a heretic who's not saved because I think we would all assume that anybody who is preaching a false gospel isn't saved. But that doesn't seem to be the case in Ephesus, the way that Paul deals with Hymenaeus and Alexander. So this tells us it's possible that there can be a genuine believer, or at least they claim to be a genuine believer, and Paul is holding out faith that they might be, and so he deals with them accordingly. Versus automatically assuming... Heresy, you're preaching heresy, you're an unbeliever, get out of our church. So there is a motivation from Paul to save them. But how are they saved if they refuse to stop preaching a false gospel? How do they get saved or how do they ensure their salvation or how do they validate their salvation or, or how do they stop preaching heresy if they refuse to stop preaching heresy? Paul answers this at the end of verse 20. In speaking of Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have made a shipwreck of their faith, Paul says, Whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So, you would think that handing someone over to Satan is an eternal death sentence, right? I mean, that's not, I, I would assume that, based on all my knowledge of Scripture, that'd be my first thought, until you read texts like these, and you're like, well, now what? Some translations say, in verse 20, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may, learn, that they may be disciplined to not blaspheme. And discipline implies growth seems that Paul's intention is that Hymenaeus and Alexander would be disciplined by the Lord. And Hebrews 12 tells us that God only disciplines his children, those whom he loves. And notice, if we, even if we don't translate this as discipline, Paul is saying, I'm handing them over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It, Paul has a, an intention here, and his intention is, I want Hymenaeus and Alexander to repent to learn that they're blaspheming the Lord, to learn, change, and be saved. 
or grow. So Paul doesn't tell us that he thinks they're saved, but he also doesn't tell us that he thinks they're not saved, but they are preaching a false gospel. And Paul is saying, because they're preaching a false gospel and they refuse to stop, I have dealt with them already, Timothy, and I've handed them over to Satan. I've kicked them out of the church. You are no longer allowed to associate with them. You do not have any relationship with them. You don't have lunch with them. You don't meet with them. You don't say hi to them in the streets. You don't greet them in the grocery store. You are disconnected and disassociated with Hymenaeus and Alexander because I've handed them over to Satan that they would learn. You don't blaspheme the Lord. But what about Hymenaeus and Alexander? Hymenaeus and Alexander, those two men, are not worth the gospel for the whole world. But doesn't God sacrifice for us because he loves us? Yes. I'm going to get to that in a second. Paul's solution for unrepentant heretics, in some cases and not all cases, is that they would be disciplined by the Lord. And what is the Lord's prescription for heretics to be disciplined? It is for them to be handed over to Satan. Almost seems unbiblical, right? Like, has God even read his own word? <laughs> like, doesn't he know that Satan is the bad guy? Doesn't God know that we're supposed to love people, not send them to Satan? Aren't we supposed to go to them and befriend them and, and care for them and spend time with them and teach them and support them and encourage them and love them in those ways? Aren't we supposed to reach out and, 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 and encourage them with our friendship isn't that the idea of love in Scripture? It is often, more often than not, that is the case. But not when they refuse to repent. When it comes to preserving the purity of the gospel, these heretics need to be drastically refined and corrected and disciplined into godly faith in the true gospel. And that requires a harsh and painful journey that they must take to have their sinful flesh ripped off of their spiritual bodies which will require the most evil character to ensure that they become stripped of any pride or any arrogance or any false beliefs about the gospel of Christ. This is, God did this to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He humiliated Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar thought he was so great. He's like, oh, look how great I am. And God's like, oh, you're great, huh? And he just throws him in the wilderness. He's like, why don't you live there until you become a wild beast? And he did become a wild beast. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with dew till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And he was humbled. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar because he defied the truth of God and his arrogance, which is exactly what heretics do. They defy the truth of God in arrogance and their unrepentant refusal to align themselves with sound doctrine produces a need for grave discipline that only the most evil one can ensure. So, why, why such a harsh, harsh discipline? I told you I'd come back to this. Because God will not sacrifice his gospel for you. Now, that sounds unbiblical, doesn't it? Because it's like, isn't the whole point of the gospel itself that God sacrifices for you? 
Isn't that the gospel? Then how could you say God won't sacrifice his gospel for you? Because if God sacrifices his gospel for you, then there's no gospel for you. It's that simple. You, we, we have to preserve the purity of the gospel, even if it means losing people that we thought were saved. Even if it means church discipline, even if it means calling out unrepentant sin, we have to preserve the purity of God's word and sound doctrine and biblical teaching and holiness and righteousness and faithfulness and the true gospel. We have to preserve that. And if it costs us human beings, then so be it. Because that human being who defies the gospel only has one hope, and it's not the false gospel they believe. The only hope they have is the real gospel, and the only way they'll get it is if they're handed over to Satan because they refuse to repent, they'd be stripped of their flesh, humbled by the Lord, and return. So it's, it, this, is, this is why I say this is a different kind of love. This is a hard love. This is, this is a lot harder, I think, um, I mean, I shouldn't say a lot harder than parenting. Um, par- <laughs> parenting is really hard. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's just different because it's on a church level. It's on a larger scale. Whereas, but, but it's a very similar reality. I mean, when your children disobey you, you discipline them, right? I mean, it's that simple. We all know that. It's a, you don't even have to be a Christian to have those kinds of, to have that kind of ethic. And so we discipline our children. Why do we discipline our children? If we loved our children more than the truth, we'd be like, you can do whatever you want. And then they spit in your face like, it's okay. I'm just going to sacrificially love you as you disrespect me and disobey me and defy me as a child. And I'm your parent. That would be foolish. We'd all look at that parent and go, what are you doing? You need to spank that boy or something. I don't know. You need to discipline that kid. You know, and, and so why do, then when we come to the church, does everything change? All of a sudden, it's, it's not about discipline. It's not about making sure people are in line with God's word. It's not about obedience anymore. It's about whatever you want. It's all about, well, this person's sinning. We'll just love them back into the church, which is true until they refuse to repent, until they refuse to change, as, until they refuse to stop sinning, and they continue to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. We see this in Hebrews 10. For those who make a practice of habitual sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for their sins. So it is really important that we see that love looks different in this scenario. But it's still love. That's what we can't lose. We can't lose this idea because discipline sounds harsh. We can't lose the concept that this is love. And this is not the only place in the New Testament where we are commanded to hand believers over to Satan. So if you're thinking, whoof, this is just that one tough text in the Bible, I've got 11 more. 11 more Bible verses that are going to help you. But first, I want you to see just a couple places, just two places really. Or I'm sorry, actually, uh, one, one text in particular where this same idea is almost identically repeated. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. And Paul writes of the unrepentant sinner. He's telling the Corinthian church how to deal with this unrepentant sinner, this man who thinks it's hilarious that he's in an uh, inappropriate relationship with his stepmom. So Paul says to the church, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Harsh, but it has a reason, and Paul states, immediately states the reason at the end of verse 5. Listen to why he has to hand him over to Satan 
for the destruction of his flesh. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Meaning just as it is with the heretics in Ephesus, the means by which an unrepentant sinner is disciplined is by giving them over to Satan so that, he is so that Satan destroys his flesh so that they are humbled and they return to the Lord. Which means the primary objective, this is why it has to be motivated by love, has to be motivated by love because 1 Corinthians 13 tells us if you do anything without love, you are literally wasting your time. It's a waste it's meaningless and pointless. So we have to be motivated by love. And this is why the primary objective of church discipline is always restoration. Always. It is not get out of here, we don't want to see you anymore. It is we love you, but you have veered off the path. You refuse to repent. You love your sin more than you love the word and the truth. You love your sin more than you love Christ. At least that's what your actions say. And the church is going to discipline you. Now, we'll get to the process of how that happens here in a second. Uh, what that looks like kind of logistically based on other texts in scripture. But the point is, that's a hard thing to do. Because we do love people. That's my least favorite thing to do ever in church stuff. I just, I hate it. I, I like have anxiety about it for like the moment I schedule a meeting to sit down and have that kind of tough conversation with someone till the moment it happens, I have days of anxiety where I'm just walking around the house like, <sighs> like I don't want, no one wants to do that. No one wants to have that conversation. You know what I would love? If all of you were just perfectly obedient. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> If I was perfectly obedient and we all just live in harmony, well, that's our hope because we'll get there one day while, through Christ when he brings us to heaven. But in the meantime, this is the reality of our lives. And so I have an answer for how to prevent ourselves from getting to that point at the end here. But in being motivated by restoration with people like Hymenaeus and Alexander, they learn not to blaspheme meaning that through their painful discipline, they would adhere to the true gospel and return to sound doctrine. That's what Paul's after. That's what Paul's after for those two men. And that's what we should be after. Restoration, genuine Christ-like fellowship back into the body. So what does this mean for us? <clears throat> well, as we've seen all throughout 1 Timothy so far, it means we better take doctrine seriously. Like, I think the church, I, think it's, I don't think it's the church, I think it's human nature that makes it very difficult to be balanced in life, right? We tend to be a little more extreme one way or the other. We tend to veer one way or the other. And we talked about this on Wednesday night in our Bible study, is in our family discipleship Bible studies. Sometimes we're, we veer one way and then we veer back the other way because it's very hard to live a, perf a life where it's perfectly balanced because we're not perfect. And so this perfect balance of like uh, sound biblical doctrine and sound Christian living, I mean, if we all had that figured out, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't need, you wouldn't need me to preach the Bible to you. So we don't have that figured out, which makes, means we're, we're very imbalanced. And sometimes we're heavy doctrine and then sometimes we're heavy obedience. And it's, it's, it's very difficult because... 
the church is kind of like, we have this ideal of obedience. We know we should obey. Like Christians know that we're supposed to obey the word of God. And at the same time, Christians have a hard time obeying the word of God. And sometimes Christians veer really far and are so, so uh, wrapped up in grace that they abuse God's grace by sinning too much. Or, or they veer the other way where they're not even thinking about grace and all they're doing is they're just legalistically following every rule because they think that's what gives God pleasure. It's very hard to find a perfect balance where I'm following God's rules. It has nothing to do with my salvation. I'm already secured in Christ, justified by his blood. I don't need to obey in order to be saved. But as a response to the gospel that God has saved me with and my love for him and my devotion for Christ, I'm going to obey his word. I mean, that's the ideal, but that's hard. And so what happens is the church is filled with sinners. Which our church is filled with sinners. Because all of us sin. Even even though we are a new creation in Christ, even though we are something new, even though positionally, in God's eyes, we are perfected in Christ. That's already true, but in our experience, not yet. And so there's this not yet experience where we are being sanctified day by day, getting to that point where the already has already happened. And so our objective is to get there as fast as we can. I don't mean die as soon as you can. I mean grow as much as possible because we desire that already. We desire who we have already been made in Christ. I want to get there now. Paul talks about, says, I, if I die, great, I get to be with Christ. If I don't, great, I get to serve Christ. Either way, it's Christ. That's all I'm thinking about is Christ. I just want to be like Christ. I want to pursue Christ. I want to love Christ. I want to enjoy Christ. I want to follow him. I want to hear him. I want to pray to him. I want to listen to him. I want him to transform me. I want him to influence my life. I want him to give me his gifts. I want him to flow out of me. I want people to see him in me. I want to be all about Jesus. That should be every one of us. And the truth is, every one of us should feel a conviction right now because that's not you. Right? You know you want that. So part of you is like, no, that's me, because you want that. But that's not really who you are, because if that were you fully, you'd be perfect. And you're not. So our entire life is a process of growing in all of that Christ-centeredness. And in order to do that well, we have to know doctrine without doing what the Ephesians did, which was lose our love for Christ. So you have to learn doctrine, which means we need to be in the word and we need to understand the severity and the importance of how strict the church is with sound doctrine. Or like Paul commands Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says to Timothy, do your best, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That, that's my objective as a pastor. To do my best in rightly handling the word of God. So that, so that I, as a pastor, can do what Timothy does and have a good conscience and hold the faith when I deal with sin in the church. And you also should have that. You should know the word of God, have sound doctrine, handle the truth of God's word well so that you can also, with sound doctrine and with obedience in your own life, go after people who you see are in sin and gentle 
and in gentleness and in love and in patience and understanding and kindness, you approached them about their sin so that they would repent, so that they would be holy, so that you would grow together. And that person will not repent without humility. Which I'll get to at the end. What this also means for us, so now we know what it means for us. We have to take sound doctrine important. We have to take sound doctrine seriously. It's just far too important not to. It's so important, Paul's handing people over to Satan. So, pretty serious. Okay. It also means to us that God takes obedience seriously. Because there are severe forms of discipline that the Lord commands the church to enact in the case of unrepentant sin. Primarily, the two things that happen in this with the unrepentant sinner in Scripture is one, they're removed from fellowship with the body, and two, they are, you are, we are to have total disassociation from the unrepentant sinner. That's so hard, especially when you live in the community of that person. And we see this all over the New Testament as the way we are to deal with those who are confronted with their sin and refuse to repent. And I'm going to give you 11 examples from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 5.13, Paul says, so let me just clarify. I know sometimes I tend to over-communicate. Fine, better than under-communicating. Let me just clarify. I want, the reason I'm telling you all these verses is I want you to see that the New Testament is filled with examples of how to deal with unrepentant sin. Because if I just tell you, well, there's 11 other examples, you go, okay. And if I read a couple of them, you go, yeah, yeah I get the point. Unrepentant sin, how to deal? No, I want you to hear all of them. I want you to feel the weight of all of these texts as we walk through them so you can see that God takes, and the church should also take, sin that is unrepentant, seriously. 1 Corinthians 5.13, Paul says, Purge the evil person from among you. Um, <clears throat> there's no doubt in my mind that Paul has in his mind Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy has, uh, there's also an example in Judges, I think Judges 13. But in Deuteronomy, it's all over Deuteronomy where God says time and time again, he gives them their law. So Deuteronomy the word Deuteronomy means second law. Leviticus means law, and then Deuteronomy means second law. So it's a reiteration of many of the laws that you find in Leviticus and some changes uh, or updates or other laws. So what you find in Deuteronomy is to a Jew, here's my point. If you say to a Jew Deuteronomy, they're thinking the Old Testament law. And Paul knows the Old Testament law. And so when he writes this, there's no doubt he's thinking Deuteronomy. Because Deuteronomy repeats this concept, these very words, purge the evil person from among you. Actually, in, the, in Deuteronomy, it says purge the evil from among you. Uh, but the implication there in those texts, all translators agree that it's purge the evil person. So, for example, in like Deuteronomy 17, there's, prescript, or there's a direction for how Israel is supposed to worship God and the way in which they worship should go a certain way. And if anyone doesn't do it that way, Moses writes, or God says, purge the evil person from among you. And he repeats that over and over again. So Paul's got that in mind when he writes this to the Corinthians. Get the evil out. Why? Because 1 Peter 1.15 says we are to be holy because our God is holy. 
Like, it's, this, is, this, isn't, this is about the gospel, this is about sound doctrine, this is about the image of God and the image of Christ to each other and to the world. If we just accept sin and let people do whatever they want, unrepentantly, running around, doing anything they want, teaching anything they want, saying anything they want, without any guidance or any restrictions or any boundaries or any rules or any guidelines or any commands in which they are to obey and we don't, and we don't adhere to those and we don't hold them accountable to that, then people will run wild and do whatever they want and the church will be like the Wild West. It'll be like Corinth. Where Paul says, you guys need to get your worship in order because unbelievers are going to walk in your doors and go, you guys are crazy. So, it is very important that we are holy. Because holy means, not just perfect, but holy means set apart, consecrated. Just like Israel was consecrated. They were holy and set apart. That's why God said to the Jews... Purge the evil person. If they're not going to follow my law, purge them out. Get them out. Get the evil person out. You are a holy people. I only want holy people. You represent me. And when you don't represent me well, and because you're not being holy, deal with it. So in the new covenant in Christ, we've got prescription for how to deal with the non-holiness. It is, it is to purge the evil person from among you. Now, that's not the first step. You don't just go, hey, you sinned, get out of my church. That's not, that's not the process, okay? I'll get there in a second. I'm just giving you examples. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven. Uh, leaven, they use to raise the bread. If you think about it like this, you put a little bit of yeast in dough and does, does it, the whole thing rises, right? The concept is one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. So if there's someone who's unrepentantly sinning in your church they got to leave. you got to purge the evil person from among you. You have to cleanse out the old leaven so that they don't infect the people of God with their sin and disrupt the progression of the gospel with impurity. 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Now notice right there. This person bears the name of brother. This is a self-proclaimed Christian I'm ready to do not to associate with anyone who calls himself a Christian if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler. And I don't think that Paul is at all saying these are the only sins that you kick people out of church for. This is not a defined list. This is a, here's this guy in particular, sexual morality. But, you know, there's a lot of other things that are ugly images of Christ that we can't let go. And I don't think that... Uh, Paul is restricting to just this list. And he says at the end of the verse, not even to eat with such a one. So I'm writing to you not to associate with them if they call themselves Christians but refuse to repent and continue to live sinful life. And don't even have lunch with them. Because the, the, the temptation for a Christian who loves is, hey, my friend is sinning. They got kicked out of the church. I'm going to go have lunch with them and see how they're doing. I'm going to check in. I mean, they need to be encouraged. They need to be, they need to be you know, lifted up, and they need some brotherly support, and that's the exact opposite of Paul's prescription. It's the exact opposite of what God wants. The whole point of church discipline is so that they wouldn't have the church. That, that sounds harsh. That, that is harsh. 
But it's not not loving. It is totally loving because they need their flesh ripped off of them. They need to be humbled. They refuse to repent after a series of confrontations, and they still don't, and the church purges them out. Purge the evil person from among you. Do not associate with them. Don't even eat with them. Don't say hi to them at the grocery store. Do not, do not greet them in the walkway or wherever you are. Just don't connect. They are Satan's now. That's the answer for unrepentant sin. Matthew 18, 17. Jesus says, If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Meaning, do not associate with those who do not repent of their sin after being confronted. And the prescription we find in Matthew 18 is this. If you find, if you see a brother in sin, he says, go to him by yourself. Confront him with the sin. If you do not win your brother over, if you win your brother over, great, awesome, it's over. That person can grow now, move forward. If they refuse to repent, or as Jesus says, if you don't win them, over. Bring, go to them again, except this time bring one or two witnesses with you so that, it may be, so that your accusation of sin may be uh, upheld by two or three witnesses. And he says, if you still haven't won them over, then take them to the church and the church will deal with them. And that is where we find all these commands from Paul. That's when the church goes, okay. You've been confronted once, you've been confronted twice, and now this is the third time and you refuse to repent, you refuse to listen, you refuse to obey, you refuse to believe the gospel, you refuse to believe whatever it is, sin that you're in, uh, refuse to believe the truth about that sin. And so now the church has to deal with you this way. Purge you out as evil, cleanse out the leaven, do not associate, hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, do not even greet this person, do not even meet this person, do not have lunch with this person. The church has disciplined them and it's to be done publicly, which we'll get to. And, and that's Jesus' prescription for how to deal with unrepentant sin in the church. And at the end of that text, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I will be among them. So that is one of the most misused or misunderstood verses in all of the Bible. It's used many times in reference to, you know, if we're praying together, oh, you know, Lord, we're, we're sitting here, there's five of us praying, you said we're two or more are gathered, you're there with us, so we know you're here with us. Um, or, or it's like, you know, Used in some other context. That is not at all the context. The context of that verse is what Jesus is saying is if you see your brother in sin and you confront him and you don't win him over, there right there is a one-on-one and Jesus is kind of saying like, well, maybe it's a matter of just like interpretation. This guy thinks he's sinning, but this guy's not actually sinning and this guy's accusing him of sinning, but he refuses to repent because he doesn't think it's sin. Okay, now that guy goes back, follows Jesus' commands. That guy goes back, gets one or two witnesses. Now three people agree that this is sin. And they come to that one sinner and they go, I've confronted you once, I've brought some friends with you in love, gently, because we want to see you in holiness. And we all agree that this is sin. And that is what Jesus is talking about. That's why he says when two or more are gathered, I'm there with you. What Jesus is saying is if the church has to enter someone's life because they refuse to repent and more people have to come forward and agree with the confronter that you are being confronted about sin, Jesus is saying, I agree with them. Repent. I'm backing the confronters. I'm backing the churches. That's what Jesus means when he says, where two or more are gathered, I'm there with you. 
He's validating the confrontation, saying, I'm supporting the group of people who see your sin and confronting you with it. That's, that's the context. Now, we are imperfect, and that certainly could go awry in a lot of different ways. But that's the meaning in the context of that command. So then, another example, Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Here's the command. Avoid them. Second John, verses 10 through 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. What? Oh, that's so hard. Especially for someone like me, because I love people, and I'm a relationship person, and I, it'd be way easier for me to just pretend like I didn't hear you say total heresy and just have lunch with you anyways, but I can't, because I'm, I'm commanded not to receive into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That's if they're preaching heresy or teaching heresy. 1 Timothy 5.20. I already brought this up. Now I'm going to address it. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Persisting in sin means confronted about sin, refusing to repent, and then rebuking them again because they've already been confronted and they refuse to repent. Now rebuking them publicly in front of everybody for a reason so that everyone else may go, whoo, we really are supposed to take holiness seriously. The rest may stand in fear. And this isn't the only time Paul says to do this publicly. In 1 Corinthians 5, when he, where, where we get our best exposition, our best chunk of text on church discipline in the New Covenant, Paul says, do it with my spirit there. My spirit is there with you. Do it in front of everybody. The whole church needs to see this go down. And there's a reason. So that the rest may stand in fear. So that the rest may know, hey church, this person has been removed from fellowship. You are not, as a body, to associate with them, to have lunch with them, to greet them, to bring them into your house, to go into their house. We are disassociating from them. And that is to be done, again, in a loving Christ-like way. But it's supposed to be a severe discipline so that Satan would rip off their flesh. Titus 3.10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Have nothing more to do with him. Second Thessalonians 3.6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you have received from us. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 through 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. That he may be ashamed. So there's a reason for his shame. So shame is intentional because the shame is that conscience, that conscious saying, I'm, something's wrong. I'm, the church refuses to connect with me or associate with me. Something's wrong. My conscience is triggered and it's meant to produce repentance. 
And he says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Again, this is love for a believer with the hope of returning restoration. And finally, our text from today, 1 Timothy 1.20, false teachers are handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. All of these texts reveal how the church is supposed to deal with confronted and unrepentant sin. This is not personal. This is biblical. In all those texts, these people have been warned, called to change, charged to obey, turned from their sin, and they refuse. And what the church is to do then is enact these processes of discipline. Now the idea of totally disassociating with the Christian is difficult to swallow for some of us, but it is God's command for the church in cases of unrepentant sin. If we follow uh, all of Scripture, we put all this together, we've got kind of this formula for confrontation. We give people chances. Repent, repent, repent. Titus says, warn, warn them once, warn them twice, done. Jesus says, go to them once, go to them twice, to the church. The church doesn't warn them a third time. The church goes, you're done. I mean, they give them a chance to repent, but they're not going to repent at that point, I would imagine. And here's the reality of the situation. This is the difficulty that, and I'm just letting you into my world a little bit. I know I'm at the end here, but let you into my pastoral world a little bit. When I'm meeting with people who are in unrepentant sin and I call them to obedience and um, I'm talking like explicitly clear commands, you know, not things that are like up for interpretation, like do not commit adultery. Hey, don't commit adultery. Well, I want to. You can't, right? And so what happens is I confront the sin with the word. I bring the word. These people don't want the truth. They don't want to obey. They refuse to follow the truth. They refuse to repent. They refuse to admit their sin. They refuse to confess their sin. They refuse to whatever. What happens is I communicate to them what Scripture says. They know church discipline is coming. So what do they do? They leave. And then we don't get to do church discipline the way it's you know, described here in like 1 Corinthians 5. They leave. That makes it very difficult because they're not coming back. Because they didn't, they, they didn't even let us do what they need, which is, okay, don't leave. Stay right here so that I can discipline you. If they just stay, even though they refuse to repent, then we can go, hey, you, you're being disciplined. I'm telling everybody it's public and it's for your good. It's for your love. Go. That's the way it's supposed to go. But we never get to that point. And I shouldn't say never. We rarely get to that point because that person runs away. Now, there are ways to deal with that. But it makes church discipline. It's, it's, it's hard even to follow through with church discipline. For people who refuse to obey because they won't even stick around for that. So, there are answers for that. I'll get into that some other day. But, if we don't do that, if we don't do this, if we don't follow these commands and these prescriptions for church discipline, then that person stays in sin and we start sinning. Then we're the ones in sin. And what does this tell us? 
that obedience is much more important than we think. Obedience is not meant to restrict you. Obedience is, is meant to free you from shame and free you from guilt and free you from fear and doubt and oppression of the enemy and, and to free you from your flesh. Obedience is joyful. You want satisfaction in Christ? Obey. We learned that in family discipleship class on, on Wednesday night in 1 John. He talks about this, that the way in which you will be satisfied is through obedience. If you want joy in Christ, obey him. You'll get a lot of joy. So, how do we protect ourselves from becoming this unrepentant sinner who the church needs to discipline by handing you over to Satan? Or another way to ask it is, so how, how do you protect yourself from becoming that person? Another way to ask it is, what is missing in this unrepentant sinner? And the answer is humility. The real aim of our heart should be humility. Humility will open our spiritual hearts and minds to hear from others the way in which we need to be sanctified and reformed into Christ-likeness. We need this from each other. You need to be willing to listen to your brothers and sisters when they confront you with your sin. Yes, it hurts. That's the Christian life. It hurts. Growing hurts. My son is 10, comes up to me every other night. Dad, I can't sleep. My knees hurt. I'm like, you're growing. <laughs> That's literally growing pains. Like, that's part of the spiritual walk is it hurts to grow and it hurts to be confronted with sin. And we got to swallow our pride, humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's James chapter 4. So with humility comes change, and with change comes obedience, and with obedience comes your joy and God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. This is all hard stuff to talk about, but it's your word, and we have to, and it's the issue that happened in Corinth or in uh, Ephesus, and um, we learn from this that underneath this all, this idea of discipline is this motivation to ensure the quality of the gospel that we believe, to ensure sound doctrine in the church, so that people could truly be saved and loved properly. So I ask that you would help us to be holy. Um, we know, Lord, that all of us have sin in our life. And uh, we are grateful for your grace that we aren't immediately sent to hell for that sin because of your grace in Jesus Christ. And we aren't immediately kicked out of the church every time we sin because of your grace in Jesus Christ. So give us humility to learn from our mistakes, to grow, to listen, to learn, to be sanctified. Ultimately, so that we become obedient and find great satisfaction in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.